This is Scott Hansen. Uh, welcome to the State of the Industry. This is a podcast that uh, we put out here at Allworth Financial, and I am one of the co-founders of Allworth. And if you're new to our podcast, we do these periodically to talk about some trends that are going on within the industry. Uh, I've done a uh, podcast for over over 25 years, uh, radio show and podcast for the general public, and uh, we, my partner and I started this podcast uh, a year or so back. So anyway, today's uh, topic is succession planning to enable growth. And of course, succession planning is a major thing we hear about right now. I mean, there's, uh, if you look at, depending on what study you look at, the average age of an advisor today is somewhere in their early 50s to mid 50s. Uh, if you look at the average age of an owner of an advisory firm, there's hard, it's kind of hard to get some data out there, but it's looking like it's uh, somewhere in um, 63 to 65. So succession planning obviously is on the top of many people's minds. And whether or not someone plans on retiring or continuing to work till, um, you know, until they, they drop dead, that's fine. But most of us still need some sort of succession planning uh, in place, and particularly uh, if something should should arise, uh, you have a, a health issue or health issue of a, of a spouse or something like that where you're suddenly taken out of the workplace, um, it's good to have a plan in place prior to that because <laughs> uh, you, you don't want to find yourself in a situation like that without any sort of plan. But I want to start off with a little bit of research. We'll go through some research. Then we've got two great guests today. We'll be talking with uh, Brandon Kowal, who is um, essentially his firm, uh, Advisor Growth Strategies. They, uh, they've worked with a couple hundred independent advisory firm firms helping them kind of figure out uh, how to position themselves for more growth, how to maybe position themselves for uh, an acquisition, how to position themselves to to uh, for a sale, etc. So we'll be talking with him about some things that they've they've learned in working with their couple hundred advisors, and also we're going to talk with uh, our very own Pat McLean. Uh, Pat has spent uh, the last couple of years uh, traveling around the country most weeks talking to a variety of firms, and he's seen the succession plans that have worked well and uh, some kind of horror stories on things that have not gone well. So he'll be talking, sharing some of his uh, thoughts on those as well. But looking at some of the th- studies right now. So TD, uh, TD Ameritrade had a, a great white paper on succession planning beyond ownership transition. It's a smart human capital strategy. That is the name of their White paper, and uh, and I'm just going to kind of highlight a couple of things. This was done. This was completed in the in the December of 2017, but they they talked with over 300 independent RAAs, uh, both interviews and focus groups. So it wasn't just a sent out a survey. It was actually they got uh, pretty deep in it, and and they they had some criteria. So an advisor had to be in business for a period of time and had to have some minimum uh, gross revenue to be part of this. And what they found in some of this. Essentially, of the 300 and some odd people that they had talked with, uh, roughly two-thirds said they had a succession plan in place. So two-thirds of firms had a succession plan. But of those, 37% indicated that they had an adequate plan in place. So there's been a number of people that maybe they have a plan, but they know it's just kind of a Band-Aid. They know it's there in paper. They know it's there in case they have a heart attack tomorrow, but they really don't think it's the right kind of plan it's just something that they've they've done thus far. So um, clearly, needs some uh, work needs to be done there. And 46 percent of the firms said that they were successful on their succession plan on their first attempt, and over half said that they needed to try at least twice to get their succession plan uh, properly figured out. And if we look at what their solution is, the anticipated solution, uh, roughly two thirds was the plan to have an in internal successor, to, so to sell some, some to someone internally, 69% uh, 
um, and the uh, the remaining was to to either sell or to merge to, to somebody else. So uh, a high proportion said that they were planning on selling to uh, someone internally. And one of the nice things, if you look at um, the reason what what's holding people back with the succession planning, the number one concern was that their clients weren't wouldn't be adequately cared for after the succession. So most people are concerned with their clients, which that's a good thing to see when look at the study. Uh, at least that's the excuse that people have given why they don't have a, um, uh, a plan in place. And also a good proportion, number two, is that they don't feel that there's a need because they're not retiring anytime soon. And one of the great things about a profession, there's a lot of people that can continue to do this. It's not like we're digging ditches, right? I'm a, I'm a certified financial planner. I've been a practicing advisor for uh, almost 30 years. Uh, it's not physically intense work. It's uh, mentally challenging. So a lot of us want to continue working um, well into our retirement years. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a succession plan in place. And you might also find that uh, with the right kind of partnership, you could um, you know, both partner and uh, have a succession plan and uh, continue to work and be profitable for everybody. So and, uh, some more information, uh, DeVoe and Company, David DeVoe's firm, they did um, their M&A Outlook study, which was um, done in the fall of 2019. They surveyed 168 different advisors, uh, firms with anywhere from $100 million to $5 billion in assets under management. That's who they had looked at in their study. And some of the takeaways on, on uh, with their program here, essentially, um, this is looking at if they're able to uh, sell to the next generation. So there's a lot of advisors say, I'd like to... Um, have my younger advisors buy me out, right? Uh, the percent that are confident that the next generation can actually afford to do so is roughly a third. And there's roughly a third that are confident that the next generation cannot afford to buy them out. And about a third really don't know. So unfortunately, a lot of these, you know, 69% of firms, according to TD's research, 69% of firms say they would like to have an internal succession but only a third of firms feel that the internal that the the next generation can can actually afford to buy them. So it creates a bit of a challenge. And when you look at the number of M and A deals that have been done each each quarter, we're seeing more and more transactions. And I think it's a large part because of um, it's just it's just unrealistic to expect uh, the next generation to be able to come up with with the cash unless the owner wants to finance the sale. In which case, they essentially are not achieving top dollar by any means for that. And uh, uh, looking at some further data with DeVoe and company, the question is, are you open to a, a discussion to sell an external stake in your company? So are you look, would you be open to having a conversation about selling to someone outside of your organization? 50% of those surveyed, and again, there were 168 advisors surveyed, Minimum size was $100 million under management, so these were good-sized firms. 50% said yes, 50% said no. Further, the question, were you open to a discussion to sell an external stake in your company two years ago? So what was the mindset two years ago? Two years ago, it was a third, 33% were open to a sale to an external stake. Today, it's, uh, as opposed to two-thirds, today, it's 50%. So a couple years ago, the majority of advisors think, eh, I'm going to sell internally, I'm not going to, I don't need to go externally. Today, about half saying, I'm actually open to the concept of maybe selling externally. And it might be because they've seen a lot of successful transactions that have um, uh, taken place. And um, it's not just sell and retire. Uh, there's a lot of sell and stay going on today where people 
uh, will sell maybe a portion of the firm, maybe the majority of the firm, maybe all the firm, maybe they'll merge up into somebody else. Their plan is not to necessarily retire, but it gives them a succession plan, number one. Uh, and number two, it just provides perhaps a better quality of life for them going forward and some more services for their client. And if we're looking at uh, what's the driver for succession uh, today, uh, the question is, if you sold a stake of your firm to an external party, would it be for scale or succession or both? Uh, 21% said they'd do it for scale, helping them you know, just to be able to make life a little easier. 20% said for succession, and over 50% said for both scale and succession. So kind of was just alluding to, it takes care of a lot of their uh, other needs that they might have. They're now part of a larger organization. It also provides for um, uh, a great succession plan since so something happened to them. And uh, the question is, do you expect to acquire a firm in the next 24 months? A whopping 54% of advisors said they expect to acquire another firm in the next 24 months. If, in fact, 54% of firms made an acquisition in the next 24 months, I would shudder to think what the results would be like. Because if it's something you're going to do, uh, they can be, it just, it takes a lot of work. And they, they need to be, <laughs> they need to, think about when you bring on a client. Right? When you first bring on a client, we all know that it's a very long-term relationship. So you're, you're looking at the person thinking, all right, we got to, I'm obviously convincing this couple, this family that, I'm going to put a good, do a good plan for them. They're going to become a client. They're going to stick on as a client for decades until the rest of their life, hopefully, right? That's the plan. But you think about the, the work really comes after they've agreed to say yes. Well, when you're talking about doing an acquisition, uh, it's the same thing. The work really happens once the firms get together. There's some work getting them together, but then once they're together, it's like how do we really fully integrate these firms? How do we make sure that everyone feels like they're on the same team, rowing in the same direction, everyone has a fulfilling job at the, at the organization, et cetera? So a lot of work that goes on afterwards. And I think there's plenty of room for uh, acquirers in the in the industry, uh, but I, I believe that uh, before someone does it, they, they just need to make sure that they've done a lot of homework and are really ready to go. So. All right, we have a great guest right now, Brandon Kaywall. Brandon's with Advisor Growth Strategies, and um, just like the name implies, I guess, Advisor Growth Strategies. Uh, he had uh, his, he basically started his career with at Schwab on the custody side, and then went into consulting after just even a few years in the industry, and is now with uh, the organization, the Advisor Growth Strategies. Um, they've talked. They've worked with over 250 independent financial advisor firms. They're going to gauge with 50. Uh, they've got about probably 50 projects in, in 2020. So they have seen a number of different things. And um, so anyway, Brandon, thanks for taking a little time to join us today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to join. So let me just start by the kind of engagements you're seeing today. Uh, so you guys specialize in kind of you know, three main things, breakaway brokers, uh, comp and equity, which I'd like to spend a little time, which would be interesting, and succession and M&A, right? Um, Correct. Uh, other than the breakaway, I'm going to set that aside for a minute. How, how are your engagements with clients different today than they were, say, five years ago? Yeah, I, I think it's a really good question. The I think the primary difference that we're seeing, even versus five years ago, is, you know, I, I think a lot of firms are asking – you know, through the evolution of the industry, what, what do I want to build? And, and five years ago, I think that was somewhat true, but we've seen the pace 
you know, really accelerating from, you know, do I want to compete in a niche? Do I want to try to compete maybe a little bit more on scale? Um, and, and I think as firms are getting bigger and bigger, you know, we're starting to see more complex questions asked, right, about transitioning ownership, you know, uh, you know, really compensation systems that go across enterprises, you know, versus uh, maybe even five years ago, they were, they were much smaller than they are today. So I think the pace of change is, is different than we even saw five years ago, and, and the options are greater. So, you know, we're, we're getting a lot of questions around, you know, maybe partnering with an outside firm, entering the M&A market, or, you know, trying to find talent, you know, and I think that's the firms are moving quickly, which is a good thing, net-net for the industry, uh, but the pace of change is is really driving, you know, different questions than, than we even saw five years ago because the environment's just changed so much in that time period. And we've seen the number of uh, M&A transactions continue to increase each year. Um, are, are you working with a lot of firms that are trying to get into this? And how do we first how do we do our first deal and all that? We are, yeah. We 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 probably have um, equal parts firms that are trying to address becoming a buyer in the M and A market and an acquirer, whether that's you know uh, opportunistic, you know, in some format, or or make that as part of a dedicated growth strategy. And you know, the other side of it, of course, firms that are starting to contemplate becoming a seller or a, a merger, you know, I guess in, in some ways, but in, in some format. So we are helping firms think through both sides. You know, it's that. interesting, Brandon. I had uh, coffee with a young man uh, a few months ago. I'm I'm 53, so he was young relative to me. I think he was maybe late 20s. And he had started with one of the custodians, uh, kind of an advisory role. And then he bought a, pra- bought a very small practice with um, kind of managed it so he didn't even have any cash down, just did an earn out, and then bought another small uh, practice and he was talking to me about you know his growth strategies and I'm like if you can figure out how to buy these little tiny practices and fold them in that's a brilliant strategy right there it, it is true it, it, yeah it, it absolutely is and I think you know we we put out some research late last year called the RA deal room and one of the things that we were really trying to to focus on whether you're on the buy or sell side is uh, you know, why, why are deals getting done? Why are sellers saying yes? You know, what what's making buyers successful? And what's interesting about the situation you just brought up, I think it highlights um, what a lot of what what seemingly a lot of deals are incorporating today, which is talent. You know, and in that case, it was the buyer bringing talent into and, and becoming a, a somewhat succession solution. But we're we're seeing that more and more where. You know, I think with the, the options getting greater in terms of buyers and, and acquirers trying to increase capabilities, talent, access to geographies, things like that, where uh, that's becoming increasingly important to, to a lot of firms. And, um, I, yeah, I agree with you, though. If he can, if he can crack that strategy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, even a on one. a very, kind of a very small scale, but, um, you know, it's very meaningful to him. He was a tiny, tiny organization. And, um uh, I thought it was pretty interesting, and of course, a firm our size, we're eight, over eight billion under management, and done a number of transactions. And I think, you, as you were just speaking, a lot of what we're looking for is 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 talent. And it seems to me some of the best way to get talent is through mergers and acquisitions. I, I think it's 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 definitely viable. You know, I, I you when you look at the broader. RA marketplace, and you kind of look at a lot of the the transactions that are happening. You know, your your firm included, right? I think you do see 
entering new geographies and then the talent and capabilities when you kind of see the rational the rationale for a lot of deals i think talent and capabilities and and just really broadening the depth of of both of those items is is becoming more and more important if you have the resources to go out and and be a buyer and i and what we're encouraging a lot of firms that are thinking about entering the M&A market to do is think through exactly that right it it for us it's it has to be more than acquiring assets and revenue, right? As, as, as you know, I think it has to be, there has to be a why that is, is really, imp- really driving that strategy because it's hard work and, and it's, it's, it's a viable growth strategy, but one like any other growth strategy requires a lot of time and attention. And some of the, the deals you guys have uh, either counseled on or some uh, engagements you've had with some firms that are looking at selling, what are kind of a, if someone's thinking about, you know, maybe they looked at doing an, an internal succession, and it's just that just for whatever reason it's problematic, and they think maybe I should test the market on something external. What are two or three or four things that the firm should be thinking about doing? You know, now to kind of maybe get themselves ready for that, to dress themselves up a bit, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question, and I, I you know, we're we're going through that process with firms, and and some of the things we're encouraging uh, the. the principal owners to think through is, you know, really being clear, uh, you know, what they want to get out of a transaction. A lot of times looking internally, you know, I think that becomes the preferred, you know, option for a lot of owners and, and rightfully so. But if that wasn't working out, you maybe want to test the external market. I think you have to be clear about what your why, right? You know, one, we're telling firms to get educated. A lot of times we help with that, but, you know, really understand the marketplace. Not every counterparty is looking for the same thing or has the same capability. So I think it's really important to evaluate, you know, what, why, what do you want to get out of it? Is it liquidity? Is it a long-term growth partner? Is it scale? You know, there's, there's a number of factors that go into that. And then on the flip side, we're, we're really trying to encourage firms to think through their deal breakers, right? They're, there must you know if, if i don't get this then no no way we can have this conversation because you know too many times i think we've been in the process and and something comes out that you know you didn't realize was a deal breaker and it suddenly became a deal breaker but you know beyond that what we're you know really trying to focus on in terms of getting your firm ready is it's interesting some of the things that make you most successful in internal succession also are probably you know big drivers for uh, you know, if you're going to go into the, the M&A marketplace to make, you know, to really get yourself the best possible outcome, but really looking internally at your team, you know, with your talent and, and understanding, you know, what you have in place and, and, and getting those folks ready for, um, you know, the next step, which could be a transaction. I think beyond that, a lot of things that are the less glamorous portions to talk about, but process, you know, your your technology stack, really looking at how everything's working together. And that's purely because I think at any time you're going to go into the, on the sell side of the market, buyers are going to be testing for risk, right? So testing to see, you know, well, what happens when a principal owner winds down, you know, how engaged is the team that might come in here, right? When talking about talent, uh, trying to test, you know, if there's going to be any sort of increased risk from transitioning clients or systems, all those different things. So we're, we really try to encourage, hey, you know, go, it's, time, it's a good time to audit 
the firm top to bottom and, and really and, and take the opportunity to harmonize things where you can and, and really put yourself in the best footing to, to have that conversation. And, you know, I often hear people talk about really determining what it is you want. Do you find that a lot of these uh, owners and advisors kind of have trouble figuring out exactly what it is they want? Because that I know I did. So we sold the majority stake of uh, our company to a private equity firm uh, roughly two and a half years ago. And we, you know, the two years leading up to that, we talked to a variety of different firms. And we, we kind of went through the list of we, we clearly got down what's what's deal breakers, what's really important to us. But as far as getting total clarity of what the future was going to be, that just seemed to be a little murky. And some days I'd get excited about one thing, and another day I'd get excited about something else. I mean, do you find that's pretty typical, or, or not, it's not everyone as schizophrenic as I am? <laughs> no, I, I think that uh, that's typical, and you and you brought up a, a great point. I think you you know as much as you research the the market, I think the, the you know getting educated of what it's like to go through the transaction itself, which is sometimes hard to do, is really important. What I, you know, one of the things that we try to focus on is the long-term outcome, right? What, you know, you get your deal breakers lined up, you understand what you want out of it, and then really from there, trying to get really comfortable with whoever you're talking to about what the long-term outcome looks like. Because if you think about most transactions in the space, you know, it's rare to see any sort of, uh, you know, transaction where the owner just walks away day one or even six months in, right? It's it, This is a several-year process typically. You know, we, we find most selling owners need to stick around for at least three to five years. And in a lot of cases, it's ideal if it's longer. So I think understanding the other, the other side from not just the transaction itself, but what does life look like in being part of, you know, the, the other firm or being part of the new entity, which sometimes is, quanti- is qualitative, right? You, you need to maybe chat with folks that have been through it before, you know, consultants that have, have seen it, you know, hap- you know, happen, you know, really, and, and just understand what that long-term looks like. But I think you're right, Scott. It, it's, it is not uncommon to get into it and still have a few open questions. You just, you know, you try to reduce those as much as you can. And Brandon, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, a lot of firms are selling, the, the founders are sticking around for a period of time. Can you think of a situation where that's just worked out phenomenally well for somebody and then maybe a situation where it's been a bit of a disaster? Yeah, the, uh, the, I can. I, you know, I think the first example where it's gone phenomenally well, we've seen, we've seen a number of transactions go really, really well. And I think wh- why that is is the both parties did a really good job of um, you know, thinking back on one in particular, both parties did a really good job of understanding each other, understanding the integration, right? I think um, integration is something that is talked about, but it's, it's, you know, can sometimes be an afterthought in, in transactions. And for us, when you, you have to get the deal right, of course, and the numbers matter, and, and those things are true. But, you know, what, what it looks like beyond and how you integrate is is really important because you're changing seemingly you're going to change a lot through that transaction. So the ones that we've seen go well, the buyer has a, you know, let's call it the prevailing entity has a really good plan for what what roles people will take on, how they'll, you know, be able to participate in the new entity, for, you know, how do systems get converted and how do clients most importantly 
you know, what, how are they impacted in their experience? Um, I, I think when I've seen them go very poorly, that either was not fully considered up front or somewhere along the lines it fell down. And, and so then what we see is the team, you know, the, the team starts to get a little bit, uh, you know, disengaged, yeah. right? Because things aren't happening. You have multiple systems to do things. The clients are asking questions so that it sort of compounds on itself. So I think those are two broad examples, but when we've seen it go, you know, be very challenging, I think integration has been a really big player in that, in that conversation. And as far as the staff, are the ones that have gone well, for the most part, do you see this? I mean, are firms doing this to, to get rid of people to cut costs or you've seen uh, more, more career opportunities for the staff that are there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'd say on the, on the whole, we're seeing more of the latter. So I think, you know, we, we kind of liken it to, you know, a sports analogy, right. Where you're bringing in depth and you're bringing in, you know, really great players into your farm system and giving them opportunities to, to succeed. Because I do think a lot of outside buyers are, you know, to your point, looking for, looking for really great talent, looking for really great people that can come in and help progress the, the business. I think part of that is on the buyer where you, you do have to have, you know, you're, you're offering something that the seller doesn't have, right? Whether it's liquidity or scale or process, whatever it is that's really attractive. And then some of that's on the, you know, of course, on the seller and their team to, to get engaged and how you bring those two things together is, is really important. But we're, we're seeing more examples of, um, you know, getting, getting talent in and putting the, you know, and, and really trying to get them activated versus cost-cutting uh, transactions. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, <clears throat> I think that's the way we've, we viewed it as well as, uh, you know, sometimes there might be some redundancy in a couple areas, but by and large, it's, you're trying to grow a, grow a, a practice or an office or a region or whatever. It's um, requires more people. It's not less though. Um, yeah. And, and I think one of the other challenges I'll point out is, and, and you just, you know, sparked me on this is, you know, I, I think if you're on the sell side of it, whether it's you're evaluating internal succession or, you know, thinking about approaching the deal market psychologically from what we've seen is that you, you have to be careful to not assume that you can dictate every single step in those conversations, you know, it, it, it takes two to dance. So whether, you know, you're doing it internally or in, in trying to activate your next gen to be your succession solution, or you're engaging outside parties, right? You've been through it. it it's, it, there's a, there's a give and take that happens there. So I think part of it is just coming to terms with that, where maybe you're an entrepreneur who's been in sole control of your business and you've made every decision to a, an environment where now others have a say. And, and that can be, you know, like it or not, that can be a challenging um, hurdle to overcome. But, you know, one that, you know, if you're even considering it, you know, it's, it's worth, you know, at least contemplating early Yeah, on. and I think a lot of independent advisors are independent for a reason. I mean, they, uh, yeah, right? I mean, it's a bit of a particularly ones that have been around a while they're kind of uh, charting new territory starting their RAAs and uh, a lot of them are, are quite entrepreneurial I mean we just find that we need to make sure that um, we've done I think seven transactions thus far that we need to make sure that people have some great things to work on if they want to continue to work and um, yeah, still feel like they can be entrepreneurial and that sort of thing and not yeah not, not I, I think it's a great point yeah fiercely independent right most a lot of firms they made the choice to 
to start their own business for a reason. And and I think you're absolutely right. Is that it's it's trying to figure out ways to, you know, certainly create harmonization. And and if there's always you know the word synergy is always thrown around. There's there's ways to do that, but still keep you know the team activated to go out and still feel entrepreneurial, just part of a bigger entity, presumably. Yeah. Well, this has been helpful. When you guys also deal quite a bit with with comp and equity, um, how of the the firms today? How often are you seen the equity concentrated with a handful, maybe just a couple founders or even one individual, as opposed to being widely dispersed? We we still see a lot of concentration, uh, and and I do think to the credit of, of a lot of the industry, there I think more and more firms are trying to to tackle that. But I, I'd say it's still very common to see RIAs that have um, a, a concentrated equity position with one or two, you know, primary founders or or owners. Um, you know, I think that is. That is still out there. There, there are some firms that have done a really good job trying to broaden that out and and get others involved. But I'd say we're still seeing most firms with one or two primary control and primary, you know, equity owners in in the firm. And do you think that if you look five years, I mean, do you think that every do you think that equity being an equity holder is is the always the right incentive for uh, employees that are advisors? Or do you think there's other sometimes other comp structures that maybe even a better motivator? Yeah, I, I think it's a um, it, it, situationally. I don't think it's equity is always the best solution. I certainly think it's a great arrow in the in the quiver, so to speak. And and you know, I think the industry broadly, what you're seeing in the RA channel in particular is there is a there's a wide gap between you know it's roughly. A little bit over five percent of the firms are controlling over sixty percent of the assets, right? So you see these really big. Is it that entities, big now? Five percent controlling sixty percent of the assets. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty big dispersion. So, you know what what you're seeing is, um, and and why I bring that up is you you have a, a, a segment of the market that is really trying to compete to to keep up on the growth side and to keep up on. You know the the scale the scale side of it really keep talent engaged right and not lose talent to larger firms and larger enterprises that you know are, have have a pretty substantial infrastructure and where that shows up I think in in compensation and equity is having the right mix of of incentives is really important so I don't think every contributor even advisors you know really I don't think every contributor has to be an owner to really uh, be happy and be satisfied in their career. I think there's compensation, short and long-term incentives. There's, you know, elements where you can use deferred compensation and things like that where they will work in time. But I will say, broadly speaking, in the industry, you know, there is a, if you look at sort of Cerulli statistics showing over $2 trillion in assets in motion over the next 10 years, there, there's a lot of liquidity that needs to come from somewhere, right? So it's a little bit of an interesting tension point where I think comp is enough for some contributors, but I would also also encourage firms not to discount the the importance of diversifying the equity, because once you get over a certain size, if you're if you're very concentrated on the equity side, 
it gets less and less practical for you to be able to pull off internal succession and, and full recycle of equity. So I don't think it's necessary, but I think it's, it's really important to keep at the top of the list of strategic items that you evaluate. Yeah. And I think clearly, I mean, you see the large firms that where it's concentrated and internal succession is very challenging. Yeah, we, we kind of put it at, you know, really, if you're if your fair value is sort of north of 25 million, you know, which if you, you do evaluation, it comes out there. It's, it's really hard. I mean, it's and you get bigger than that. It's 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 pretty impractical, to be honest. You need you need, you know, upward uh, several dozen contributors to, to make a dent in that. Well, hey, I appreciate the time you, you took with us, uh, Brandon. And um, of course, Brandon K. Wall is a principal of advisor growth strategies. And if you go to our. Our website will have a link to their website. And you mentioned a study that um, is on that. It was the RA Deal Room. Is that what the study you guys had done? Yeah, we did the RA Deal Room last year. It's a, it's available on our website, you know, free free for the industry's education. We are currently pulling what, – what we do is collect uh, actual transaction data from around the space and, and aggregate it. So we evaluate trends within it uh, to, to, to really look at – the why, right? Why are deals getting done? Why are certain firms successful on both sides of the table? And what, what are the trends we should keep an eye on? So we're currently getting data for our 2020 study right now. All right. Well, well great. And you were a professional baseball player starting out, right, in the New York Mets? Uh, I was. So I overused sports analogies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I, did. I did play for the Mets. That's pretty cool. So let me ask you this question. If uh, at this stage in your life, if suddenly uh, you found yourself in a position to, do, to create a brand new career, Anything um, and money wasn't the, the the issue. What would the career be? Oh boy, that's a great question. You know what? I think uh, if I could pick anything, and just as, I think this is because I'm still not very good at it, I would uh, probably either be a skier or golf. Oh, it was <laughs> something that two things that I'm not very good at. <laughs> I love base, I, I love baseball, so I of course that would have been my obvious answer. But now I'm I'm really into skiing and attempting to be okay at golf but i'm not very right, good. Well, good i, pre I appreciate it. and i always i've always envied of the uh, ski patrol guys until i realized that actually I, I would have to show up like every day really early in the morning and i don't think i'd want that part of the job but um, yeah that's right it's uh it's you know if you're a warm weather person you know maybe ski patrol is not the, <laughs> <laughs> the chosen career path <laughs> well hey uh, brandon again thanks a bunch for taking some time today yeah scott thanks for having me really appreciate it have a great week all right, our next guest today is a longtime business partner of mine, Pat McLean. And uh, Pat, Pat and I started uh, the organization in 1993, so we've been working together a long time. But Pat, you took on a new role essentially about two and a half years ago. I did. Uh, here at uh, Allworth, formerly Hanson McLean, I am in charge of the team that actually identifies, communicates, and then leads the uh, integration of other firms into Allworth. Good. So I started out this podcast with some statistics, then interviewed a, a great consultant, and our title is Succession Planning to Enable Growth. So you have seen um, some succession plans that have gone very well, and you've seen some that haven't gone so well. I have seen some that uh, have gone terrible, terrible, and I have seen some that have gone very, very good from not just... Uh, not only with our firm, integrating with our firm, but integrating with some of the other firms out there. Um, so where do you want to – and I've seen someone that were just okay. Um, and I've seen some owners that have done it very, very poorly because they forgot 
um, that they were integrating or joining a larger firm and that, that one of the costs of doing that is uh, a loss of some autonomy. Yeah. They normally forget that they cash that big old check, though, before they start complaining about their loss of autonomy. Uh, but anytime you, lo- you join a larger or any organization, the mere fact that you're joining it means you're giving up some autonomy. Well, anytime you're part of a team. That's right. When yeah. You, didn't, yeah, you didn't come in the Boy Scouts when you were in the sixth grade and change it. Uh, the Boy Scouts, um, I think that may have been an excellent or a terrible analogy. I don't know which one. <laughs> I just going back to I had trouble whittling my derby car. It never did <laughs> never too terribly it. well. But, uh, you've talked to hundreds of firms. Hundreds. And I have visited in the office is with dozens of firms, dozens and dozens of yeah. firms. And so first of all, talk about a couple times when the succession has not gone well. So almost without exception, when the succession has not done well is when it was an internal succession or a first, a forced internal succession. So it's a forced internal succession versus an internal succession. Sometimes an internal succession could happen, uh, develop organically, where you have someone in the firm that's been there for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, whatever the amount of time is, and the principal uh, is looking to either uh, scale back their responsibilities or turn them over completely. And if someone has been around long enough and they actually demonstrated uh, the capabilities of doing that, of running the firm, Uh, those have a tendency to actually uh, work better. Now, in saying that, I have seen where someone who thought they were the heir apparent, the Prince Andrew, if you will, um, and they were going to take over the uh, throne when the exiting principal didn't think that they had the right stuff and didn't allow that to happen, and that has caused uh, breakups of firms. That's pretty common. That's pretty common, right? Where someone says, you know, I thought I was going to take over. Now you told me something different. So I'm leaving. Oh, and by the way, you know, we're going to fight over or get lawyers involved in what happens to these clients. That's one. That's an organic failed or, or successful. Uh, I've seen them happen successful more than I've seen them fail on those organic ones that have taken place organically over a long period of time. A fourth succession is someone's in their late, 50s, early 60s, late 60s, and says, you know, I really want to exit here in three to five years. I need to come in and find someone who's going to take over this business. And they go out and hire the first good sales guy they run into, oftentimes a wholesaler from that's been calling on them for years, or a friend of a friend, or they come into their life somehow without a lot of big searching going on. Uh, just like, ah, they seem like a nice enough person. I have not seen one of those actually work. I hope it works. I haven't seen one work. And the reason is, at some point in time, someone's going to get upset um, and they're going to throw their talent and say this more times than not. I have seen the person who thought they were going to take over the business not be qualified to take over the business or it wasn't happening fast enough and they will then take a bunch of the clients and leave with them. Think about this. I saw one up in um, outside of Seattle where the person, Scott, husband and wife, uh, one employee, the employee leaves. They bring in another person. The person's there three years. They say, okay, we're going to slowly give you these clients over a series of years. The retiring party moves two and a half hours away 
To the retirement dream. To the retirement dream. And this person, young man's in there. He's in his 40s and he's working and he's still paying the old guy a bunch of money. And three years into it, he comes in, he throws his keys on the desk and says, I quit. I'm out of here. Well, what's he leave with? He leaves with a lot of the existing clients. Why? Well, because he could. Now, should lawyers have been involved? Yes. Should there have a contract that actually should have been written before that would help protect you against this? Yes. yes. <laughs> but here's what happens. There is no value left in that business. Whether the lawyer, whether lawyers got involved or didn't get involved, there's no value left in that business. So they come to firms like us and they say, oh, we'd like you to come and buy us. We want to leave as soon as possible. In fact, we've moved two and a half, three hours away from the main office. I'm driving back twice a, meet, a week to meet with clients, try to keep it together. We'd like you to take over immediately, and we won't even bid on it. Why won't we bid on it? Well, I think we're looking for long-term partners. We're looking for firms that can, we can fully integrate, become part of the Allworth story to create a national fiduciary firm. And if an integration went poorly the first time, the, the, the amount of clients that are going to live through that two times, three times, we don't know. Plus, there's an unknown value if we're buying a firm like that or we're trading stock for a firm like that because – there's a competitor out there that's telling a completely different story that knows all the inside clients, everyone, the whole process behind how those clients are cheated. We saw that one. I saw one uh, out of uh, Southern California that was even worse. It was four years into the process when the person, more than one, decides, you know, we don't really need to buy this business. We could just take it. And we're far enough along in the process that we actually take it. So that and in internal successions, most of the time, the risk never leaves the seller. What's that mean? Can you finance these things? Sure, you can finance them. There's even some financing now that uh, don't have personal guarantees, my yeah, understanding. Yeah, yeah. But, but they're guaranteed against what? The business. The business, which is the person that's selling its assets. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So personal guarantee or no personal guarantee it's still yeah, there's still covenants and everything else, right? That's right. There's there's production covenants, revenue so you sell covenants. You sell an internal and, and it's a five year yeah. transaction. Yeah, you're 65 or 70 and you sell it uh, over a five year period and it's internal, and you're three years into the deal, and it starts going south. What do you do? It's your largest asset that you're you're waiting to get paid on. You step back in. You step back into the business. You try to up to to right the ship. You try to get it going the right direction. So, so where do you see, where have you seen good transactions where uh, it works great for succession, also provides for some growth for the overall firm and maybe even growth of the, of. Uh, I've seen it to uh, integrators like ourselves, where we actually integrate the platform uh, into our platform. All that means for the rest of the listeners is you're running on our technology, you're running on our finance, you're running on our real estate. We, we will incorporate your investment. Um, we will incorporate most of the times your investment allocations t uh, across our platform. But the running of the day-to-day -day business is no longer your responsibility. That works. And the ones that get the big checks from the, uh, the firms that are going to let you uh, run it autonomously. But those have a tendency to be a little bit more sticky because you're responsible for your P&L many years to come and your earnout is dependent upon your P&L 
Um, yeah, those are kind of the aggregators where those you're are the selling a par- portion of your earnings. You're either selling all or a portion of your earnings. Uh, those will work as long as you understand uh, the economics behind it. So both of those works in- work internally. The reason it doesn't work is, quite frankly, the person that is normally taking over your firm didn't build it, maybe not have the right skill sets to run uh, a company of your size. I think there's a reason you're seeing – uh, firms such as ours that are doing full integration, they seem to be very popular right now. And I think a part of it is, I mean, if you think about well, our typical deal structure, as an example, is 75% cash, 25% equity roll. It's kind yes. of a typical thing, right? Yep. And we, I know our firm, as well as others, we like to see alignment after the deal. So I want you, if you're going to stay, I want you to own part of my company. I want you to think about the business as a shareholder, just like I do. Yeah, as a partner, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And I think if the deal's done done right, there's not these many years worth of earnouts. Don't have to worry about all this. Like, getting quite a bit of cash. Fast, up front. easy. And then, um, then they are a partner in the overall organization and can help help share in uh, the the future growth. Yes. It, it, so, it's, I'll share this with you, Scott. Eighty. Around 86 to 87% of the companies we talk to, we say no. And the reason is there's three things that if you're looking at at, at joining another firm, you need to make sure of, right? First thing is if you're joining someone's firm or they're joining your firm, is culture, are you culturally aligned? Which, what, do you, what does that really mean? It means do we think about the customers in the same way? Do we believe in principle on the same ideas? Do we always act that way? Everyone, you know, at least they, they define themselves as customer. So ours is employee first, not customer first, employee first. Ours is employee first. And the reason is we think if you have happy employees, associates, you're going to have happy customers. And it's much easier finding a new customer. And then it's really about serving the customers and opposed to using the customer as a, a transaction. That's right. It's, it's how to serve the customer. So if culture. Then the second thing you actually look at is uh, the investment do they believe, uh, and that might have something to do with culture, but is their investment management similar or uh, isn't too far off? You're never going to find a perfect match, but it isn't too far off of what you believe. And then the third thing is the economics or the finances above it, uh, behind it. Unfortunately, I've seen com- companies come to, to market that have been mo- marketed by brokers that the, the asking price is so realistic, I've seen them come back off the market. Unrealistic. Uh, I'm sorry, unrealistic. So they, the valuation they got was not real to the yeah, market. The, so a market. So a broker comes in and says, we could get you $10 million, $10 million. And then we're in a competitive situation. We bid um, against, with all the other ones on this thing, and no one comes in at a price higher than $6 million. <laughs> True. And they say, well, we thought we were going to get $10 million. And like, we don't care what you actually thought. This is what the market will pay. And by the way... All of us guys that are bidding on these companies know each other. We actually know what the deals go down for and whether in certain places we're willing to stretch or not stretch. And no one was really that excited about this to stretch on the valuations. No different than if you were a real estate broker, you could get the listing. If you actually tell someone whose house is worth yeah, a million dollars that it's worth three million, you'll get the listing. You're just never going to get the sale. So if somebody, so you've talked to enough firms now, if somebody's thinking about, selling in the next couple of years, what are a few things that they should be focusing on? Oh, first of all, I'd focus on what you're trying to achieve above and beyond the dollar amount, right? Are you 
Do you still want to be involved? Do you just want to be a financial advisor? Are you tired of running the business? And we've certainly talked to enough people that they just they want to get back to being a financial planner. Scott, I'm in I'm in the middle of two transactions right now where the people are in their early fifties, and both of them said the same thing. I am tired of running a business. I don't want to have to talk to employees. I don't want to have to pay check, and I I don't want to decide on health insurance. Two two transactions right now, early fifties. Did one. Last year with Hugh Phillips in our Napa office, right? He comes after the fact when it's Hugh, mid-50s. Hugh Phillips, uh, it was called Phillips Financial uh, in, in Napa. He's like, my life has changed because I don't actually run the business. I'm a financial advisor again. I'm enjoying this. So that's one of the things is what are you trying to achieve, right? What, what are you as an owner trying to achieve? Do you want to leave the business? Do you want to change your role in the business? What, what role do you have forward? So that's the first thing you look at. The second is, do I want to become part of someone bigger than myself? Do I want to become part of a bigger team? Do I want to operate my own P&L? And that will actually help you decide what type of uh, firm you're looking to sell to. And the biggest thing, always, 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 always spend time in the transaction on the earnout because that's where it's going to go south is – not when you actually give the keys to your office to someone else. It's how you're going to get paid for it. And the longer the earnout, three, four, five years, the more risk. Are we still there. seeing some offers out there with that long of earnouts? Yeah, we're seeing three years, three year earnouts. And then uh, there's things that are contingent upon things they have no control over the earnouts. Um, yeah, and I think hard. I think one of the most important things is making sure there's alignment. And I've seen a lot of deals out there where. The earnout might be predicated upon how a particular market does, right? That's right. Uh, how that firm does over the next 24 months, 36 months. I'm thinking, now you've got three years where you're going to be in competition with your new owner. You're going to try to extract as many resources as possible. I mean, it's the kind of same kind of situation you see when someone's a commission broker somewhere, right? Right, where they where you have to go I mean, into the started, manager's if office. If you started in, in an environment like that, then you know exactly what you're going to have if you uh, if if your earnout's based upon your own personal production, as opposed to that's right joining an organization where you can share in the success together. That's that's right. Remember, when we weren't a firm like that. We'd have to go in there and we're like, yeah, yeah. oh, at this level we were a supposed to get a halftime ago. secretary, and this level <laughs> we were supposed to get a halftime this. And you're always fighting for resources. You're fighting for resources. Um, but listen, the market the market's frothy. There is no question. The valuations are high. We're at historically high levels. Just because you have a business doesn't mean it has nearly the value you think of. It may or it may have a lot more. So the markets favor reoccurring revenue, fee-based fiduciary. They discourage uh, uh, annuity, even if it's even if it's ongoing annuity business. It isn't. It isn't priced nearly That's the same right. as a fiduciary. And one-time commissions are actually can be a negative. And you're thinking, why would they be a negative? If all you have in your portfolio is clients that you got paid upfront commissions on and there's no ongoing fee, there's a cost associated with servicing those clients where there's no revenue revenue attached to them. Interesting. But it's, it's, I tell you, if, if you're not going to hurt yourself having the conversation, if you're think it's anywhere in your future, two years, three years, five years, seven years to have the conversation with a firm now, um, to better understand your situation. And I know we've got some case studies at our website, allworthpartners.com. 
allworthpartners.com will give you some uh, we can look at it a little more Pat's about walking up he's, <laughs> okay, he's, not, what? he's got less patience than my nine year old does I actually I, you just I, listen I, I'm busy I don't know what you do around here I don't know what <laughs> so you so let me ask you this I don't know what you do around here but so I'm let's busy assume, let's assume that today you uh, got fired or you quit <laughs> okay <right>? when <laughs> when you can't wait <laughs> I'm so excited <laughs> This career is completely gone, and you're going to start something, a, a new career at this stage in your life, something outside of financial services. What would it be? I'd sell mattresses or tires. To the same people? No. They got like one side of the storage. You need a mattress, <laughs> you need tires. What will it be? I said, are you firm s- or soft? You're talking about the tire or the mattress? I said, or, not oh, and, okay. or. Why? Well, the, the reason is because it's consumable. <laughs> it's a higher ticket. It, you know, it's funny to ask these questions. It's usually it's aspirational type things. <laughs> like Brandon earlier wants to be either ski, full-time ski instructor or golf, and you want to sell tires. <laughs> I would. Uh, I think it'd be fun. And let, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. It is a, a relatively high ticket item that actually is consumed over a period of time and people need to replace them. And the, 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 the price spectrum is across the board. So you could, you could go to zero, you could go to a lot of money and it's consumable, but it's a high ticket consumable. That's what you'd like to do. (laughs) I might. You still might. (laughs) Anyway, uh, for more information about Allworth, go to allworthpartners.com. Uh, again, there's going to be links to our, our guests that were on today. Of course, Pat McLean was just with us. And um, we do these periodically as a way to try to help and educate and help you be uh, better advisors out there. We think that uh, got half of this industry is either unethical or inept or both. And we'd love to see the half of the industry that really cares and has a fiduciary mindset. Uh, we want to see them continue to grow to uh, serve the population better. So with that, uh, thanks a bunch for joining us. This podcast has been brought to you by Allworth Financial, a registered investment advisory firm with the Securities and Exchange Commission. 